Putin, in his senseless war of aggression in Ukraine, has resurrected death and destruction on a scale not seen since World War II, bringing misery and violence to the heart of Europe in the 21st century. What myths and delusions led us to this point, and how can it be stopped? Today, I'm exploring these questions with Professor Dina Harpaeva. Welcome to Silicon Curtain Podcast. Please like and subscribe if you like the content we produce. Our material is now available also on popular podcasting apps as well, such as Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Dina Harpaeva is a professor at the School of Modern Languages at the Georgia Institute of Technology. She has also worked as director of research at the Smolny Institute in St. Petersburg. Dina's research and teaching interests lie on the intersection of cultural studies, memory studies, post-Soviet neo-medievalism, history of emotions and death studies. Her most recent book project, The Celebration of Death in Russia and America, compares the way of engaging with death and representations of violent death in Russia and American popular culture. Welcome so much to the channel. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Well, before we dive into the issues, especially around the re-Stalinization of Russia, um, I'd love to learn a little bit more about your background and what led you into this area of research. Uh, thank you. Thank you for this question, Jonathan. Well, I actually got my PhD in San Petersburg State University in the area of ancient Greek studies. Uh, because that was their kind of the niche, the intellectual niche to escape from the dominant discourse. But after I got my PhD in uh, 1989, it was already possible to do much more contemporary things. And I, I was, I have always been very interested in their memories, how, how our society lives this, their memories of the crimes of Stalinist regime. And what I was interested, especially at that time, back in the late 80s, early 90s, is how this uh, memory, how does it function in contemporary society? What impact can it have? And does it have any impact on the changes which their post-Soviet society underwent in their early 90s and on. My feeling that time was that insufficient working through the past, the Theodor Adorno, to use Theodor Adorno term, uh, could create a sort of a lot of uh, problems for democratization of Russia. And I've been publishing on this subject since uh, 19, early 1990s. And unfortunately, I believe this is what we are witnessing now. The fact that at that time, back in the early 90s, uh, the Russian uh, intelligencer and the Russian Democrats decided instead of uh, kind of working through this horrible past, they decided to start building Russia as they, the expression of the time was kind of starting from the zero ground, building Russia from, from scratch, a new society, a new country. And although this feeling is very well understood, 
I think it was a huge mistake that liberal and democratic forces allowed themselves to kind of, that they committed at, at this period of time, not to speak about, of course, communists and nationalist forces that considered and continue to consider uh, what happened under Stalin, a kind of normal and even heroic part of Russian history. And so what we've ended up, sorry. No, no, that's how I, uh, I have been interested in this issue for many years. And of course, um, just before we came on the recording, you were telling me a bit about the Smolny Institute, which was one of the first liberal institutions. Uh, and I imagine looking at issues of the past memory, the repressions under Stalin's period. I mean, where you were working and what you were studying, there must have been a fairly open attitude to these things, not necessarily, however, reflected by other institutions and in society and the media. Yes, uh, my husband, Nikolai Kopasov, he is also a historian. Uh, he was the founding dean of uh, Smolny Institute, and I was director uh, of research. Uh, Smolny Institute was the first liberal arts college in Russia, uh, created jointly by Bard College of New York and St. Petersburg State University. So the whole idea of this project was to create, to offer Russians a new educational model, which would enable uh, us and the students to create a kind of a democratic educational system, which is very different from traditional Russian system, much influenced by kind of 19th century German university, which is professor-centered, huge classes, and so on and so forth. So uh, Smolny was built on the model of American liberal arts education. We believed at that time that Smolny would allow us to help students become democratic, uh, democratically oriented citizens of Russia. Uh, the education was very much student-centered uh, and uh, critical thinking was completely central to everything what we have done. And yes, of course, I lectured on, uh, I taught classes on uh, Stalinist memories, memories of Stalinism in uh, post-Soviet Russia and on the topics of, of my research. And of course, in the 90s, um, there were liberal voices within the government and right up until I think, you know the middle of uh, of the uh, of the two thousands, but it's really in the era of economics, isn't it, that you had more liberal influence, um, far less influence in in say sort of cultural and historical uh, liberal views. Well, uh, you're right in the sense that uh, if you think about uh, uh, people like uh, you know state leaders like Igor Gaidarpur for example, uh, for majority of those people, uh, despite the fact that they hated Marxism, for many of them, the idea that economy really drives society, this kind of economical determinism, which is very central to Marxism, uh, was also very central to their thinking. So they sort of felt that, and many Western experts supported this 
ideas at the time that once you build the market economy, democracy just follows, uh, which was a complete delusion, of course. I would say that in the 90s, there, there, there were basically two periods when Russia was completely open democratic country in its entire history. That was in starting from February 17th to uh, October 17th, then the provisional government created really a space of democratic sort of freedoms in Russia. And also the 90s were there another period then despite all kind of, you know, economic crimes, corruption, and, uh, you know, uh, just street banditism, uh, there were a lot of negative features, of course, at this period. But in terms of uh, freedom, it was the only kind of period of 10 years when Russia was completely liberal. You could have published whatever you want, say whatever you want, do whatever you want. It was a period of democracy in Russia. And that's why Mr. Putin hates it so much. And a lot of Putin's mythology is based on the idea that 90s were their horrible times and Mr. Putin just single-handedly helped Russia out of this horrible, horrible period. Now, your studies of the re-Stalinization of society, I'd love to explore that more because I'd love to know the sort of dynamic of that, what's been resurrected, what hasn't. Um, but, um, you know, based on the research you've done there, did it come as a surprise to you that uh, he launched a full-scale war in Ukraine? Or do you think that was almost an inevitable outcome of the re-Stalinization policies he's been following? It was an inevitable outcome. It's like in this famous Chekhov's play, there uh, Gan the Chengs on the wall, one, you know, will inevitably <clears throat> shoot at some point. Uh, the same, this restalinization. I mean, Putin started this campaign and they can talk a little bit more later, if you like, about how, just about their historical kind of moments, how this campaign was organized. He launched it the moment he became acting president. Uh, uh, and even before uh, he, he was very active uh, in promoting it. I, I would like to say that uh, restalinization is has been extremely important for militarizing uh, post-Soviet society. Militarization was absolutely central for Putin's ideology and for the whole myth, what, what I call the myth of the Second World War. And then I say the myth of the Second World War. I'm not suggesting, of course, that the Second World War was didn't exist or was a, a myth and not a historical event or that people uh, didn't suffer during this period of time. But unfortunately, uh, this the historical memory of this very traumatic event has been utilized by Putin in such a way as to lead the Russian population believe that today that, you know, uh, heroic 
Ukrainian president Vladimir Zelensky of Jewish origin is a Nazi and leads the Nazi regime in Ukraine and that Ukrainian people needs to be denazif den help me. Denazified, de de yes. Denazified, thank you. And de de-satanized if you believe the latest uh, propaganda yeah. as well. De-satanized, yeah, but let's let's just this kind of second part uh probably let's bracket it for now because part of my research is also uh has to do with this neo medievalism and mm -hmm. how neo medieval thinking uh actually influenced uh Putin's regime and Putin's propaganda but I think it's just uh, let's let's just it's leave. deal with the Stalin period first yes yeah um, so when did it really, so you say he started right from the beginning, and I think very early on in his regime, they resurrected the Soviet anthem, and that was a bit of a, a red flag, obviously, but that mm. has been accelerating. What are the other milestones in uh, this sort of echoes of Stalinism being resurrected? Well, uh, there uh, Soviet anthem, that was not even their first kind of significant step taken by Putin already in uh, 1999 at the gathering. I, I love this quote and I just give it to you because I think our, our viewers need to know this. On December 20th in 1999 at the gathering of the KGB high command uh, to mark the day of the Czechist, which is the anniversary of the KGB founded in 1917, uh, by uh, by Lenin and Felix Dzerzhinsky, Putin, then the prime minister, delivered a speech in which he reported that, and now I quote, a group of F FSB agents assigned to go undercover and infiltrate the government of the Russian Federation has completed its first round of task. So he is still prime minister, and this is what he says, in one of very important kind of speeches. In uh, on February in February 2000, Putin, then acting president, uh, visited the war memorial at Mamayev Kurgan in Volgograd and met the war veterans there. That was also a very significant event. I uh, will skip the details what was discussed there, but after his visit. His visit definitely inspired several local calls to rename the city Stalingrad, as it was under Stalin. And uh, those calls have been tabled, you know, since then regularly by the Volgograd City Council and the Communist Party to, uh, to the State Duma. Uh, in December of the same year, Putin uh, created, as you mentioned, this uh, uh, music for of the Soviet national anthem, and Sergei Mikhalkov, who created the music for the Stalinist anthem, then recreated it in 1970s to kind of a little bit different tone, and now he was called on to do the same for, for the Soviet anthem. So uh, it's all those 
things are extremely significant, but it's nothing to compare to the memory uh, to the victory day celebrated on May 9th in 2000. Then Putin, already president, uh, elected, uh, well, he was technically elected president in March 2000 and uh, inaugurated in May 2000. So under his leadership, there was the first military parade on Red Square that brought back memories of Soviet parades. This didn't happen under Yeltsin. Nothing of the kind existed uh, before Putin came to power. And that was the first kind of really significant sign of restalinization campaign. And coming back to your question uh, about the, the current war in Ukraine, this was the kind of starting first step towards militarization of the country. It would also suggest that if he was an agent uh, in 1999, it would also suggest that he had never retired his position within that agency and that while he was working in the mayor's office in St. Petersburg under Anatoly Sobchak, it would suggest that that was also part of the mission. Now, it is alleged that vast amounts of money and funds and material were stolen at that point, um, obviously under the direction uh, of uh, Putin. It's also been alleged that there were close connections between some of the largest crime uh, syndicates uh, in St. Petersburg at the time, and that Putin in some way was the liaison between um I guess the early version of the Siloviki or the or the, uh, the the local government and those criminal elements. And, um, you know, for anyone who lived in St. Petersburg in the 90s, it was probably the most corrupt, um, the most mafia ridden and, and violent uh, place in all of Russia. Um, and Putin was really at the heart of that. But at the same time, uh, potentially still working for the FSB or KGB. Mm -hmm. Well, as you know, Marina Salier uh, was head of their uh, Duma commission, which investigated Putin's uh, uh, economic crimes in 1992. Uh, Putin was relying heavily on uh, a young jurist from uh, St. Petersburg State University at this time called Dmitry Medvedev. Uh, and uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe that all nine members of this commission uh, headed by Salia, none of, they were all kind of, none of them were uh, old enough to die, but they all died. None yeah. of them. Yes, and not, not always uh, in very clear circumstances, I'm guessing. Yes. Yes, yes, and not of old age, clearly. And this is something else we see. I know it's a little bit off topic, but we also see since February a huge amount of executives in the oil and especially gas sectors also meeting rather extraordinary and untimely ends. And we can only assume that either it's it's resistance or or even just knowledge of what's taken place. Yeah. I mean, this is what they call, I mean, what is correctly called pointed terror, mm. which Putin unleashes in the country. And that's just 
the tip of the iceberg because uh, this is what the, attracts media attention. We just know little about what happens, you know, on the lower echelons, so to say, of power. Uh, but uh, yes, I. Uh, it's definitely not at the scale of Stalinism at this point. But if you look at the amount of people killed already in Ukraine, and even the Russian casualties of war, that's already <laughs> a huge, huge scale of, you know, crimes which has been committed by, by this regime. I mean, we're definitely on a fast track to the 1930s. And in some ways, uh, what was happening in Belarus under Lukashenko was always sort of a few months ahead of what was happening in Russia or six months or a year or so. And we saw, uh, you know, Stalin-style terror already being unleashed in 2019, 2020, and the brutal suppression of uh, the protests there. And many in Russia, I mean, I watch a lot of video blogs and so on, many of them even then refused to believe that Russia was on the same track as um, Belarus. You know, that can never hear, happen here, we're different, you know, we would never put up with that. And yet the gap between Lukashenko repression and repression in Russia, that gap has now perhaps narrowed to a point where it's no longer significant. Uh, well, uh, I look at it a little different. Mm -hmm. uh, what is Belarus on the world scale? Who is interested in, you know, economic ties? What kind of market does it represent? Russia was a huge market for, for the Western companies. Oil and gas, and, you know, my personal opinion is that leaders of Western democracies that made Europe dependent on Russian oil and gas should be trialed after this war ends, uh, as a war as war criminals, as people responsible for their, you know, uh, putting Europe in such a dependence on Russia, uh, I look a little kind of different on on those differences because uh, Belarus was not an important market for the Western companies and also not a nuclear power to be appeased or a huge market to be explored and exploited, so. Uh, the crimes of against you know the democracy and their crimes against uh, violations of human rights in Belarus were followed much closer and scrutinized more much more efficiently by uh, the Western observers, media, politicians than it was the case of Putin, Putin's regime. I mean, let's not forget that there was the blast of uh, Moscow apartment buildings which brought Putin to power and which allowed him to uh, start creating his authoritarian regime. Let's not forget about Nordost, which was another act of terrorism. And we still don't know uh, how it happened, why there were so many casualties after this operation, what was it? But yet it played another kind of 
very it was another tool in the hands of Putin to start sort of you know uh, creating more sort of advancing the authoritarian regime uh, in in Russia. And uh, Beslan as well, of course, you know, Beslan, which famously brought uh, Margarita Simonyan to uh, the yeah, upper levels of journalism. Absolutely. And we are not talking here about just, you know, negligible, you know, kind of offenses against some person. It's it's a lot of people who died in, in this accidents. And uh, that would be plenty to kind of, uh, term Lukashenko, for example, a, a criminal terrorist regime. Well, yeah. something didn't happen to Putin, and it didn't happen to my mind, not because those crimes were not committed, unknown to the West, not to speak about, you know, those famous poisoning, medieval poisoning of, you know, Putin's opponents, starting from Litvinenko and, uh, you know, Skripal. And, and, uh, Skripal and, you know, several other cases. Why was it not scrutinized so much as it was the case of Belarus? For those two reasons, because some Western politicians and some Western business people uh, collaborated with Putin's regime and felt comfortable doing that and profitable. Not Let's not forget about that. While Lukashenko was much, much less important. And turning to to the uh, the Stalinization process, which I think is 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 at the heart of this. Um, unlike communism, I mean, communism had a, a period of let's say popular support, um, but by the nineteen seventies and eighties, I think very few people believed in that system. Uh, you know, they existed within it. But they operated, um, you know. I mean, you'd know potentially sort of living there. You'd you'd have your own personal life. You'd know what was true and false for you. And and, and this isn't an ideology that you'd necessarily get passionate about. You just had to put up with it and and pretend, put your public face on. Um, is the restalinization different? Does that have genuine popular support, or is it another ideology imposed from the top down? That's an excellent question. Thank you for paying attention to, to this. Yes, restalinization is driven in some very important sense by the popular support. If you look, for example, at the uh, monuments to Stalin, you have, by different counts, you know, depending, does it count small villages, big towns, but since 2000, since Putin came to power, there is a rise of Stalin's monument all across Russia in places like Mirny, uh, Sochi, Vitebsk, in several small Russian uh, cities and towns, there are plenty of monuments to Stalin, newly erected by the local citizens. Very often they're kind of masked as personal private initiatives. But those private personal initiatives are often supported by uh, the local authorities. Not to speak about, of course, KPRF, the communist, uh, Russia's communist party, which calls now Stalin, Stalin the saint, and which promotes at every possible occasion 
uh, the idea that a new monument to Stalin should be erected and tables those uh, proposals to Duma. So yes, that's that's uh, restalinization is a mo movement which relies upon popular support. And let's not forget, Putin's regime is a right wing populism. It's a right wing populist regime, which is extremely dangerous, precisely because it uh, uh, drives in and attracts quite considerable uh, masses of population. And of course, it's far more right wing in its resurrection of a uh, patriarchal uh, religion centered nationalism. It's far more right wing than, say, Zelensky's uh, Ukraine. Oh, my God. I mean, why would you call Zelensky's Ukraine right wing? I mean, <laughs> I I would never call it right wing. I, mm. I think uh, what Ukraine does now to the world and I, I believe a lot of a lot of people share this opinion it just defends democracy i mean if putin is allowed to take over ukraine and all those appeasement talks horrible appeasement talks that are going on here in the united states at the moment and uh kind of diminishing uh popular support for their uh american government support of, of the ukraine if those appeasement talk allowed to happen and if Ukraine is given to Putin, it's it will be the end of the existing international system. And I believe that will be the end of democracy. So Ukraine is fighting for our future, not only our future in Russia, our future in America, our future in the UK. And it's, to me, uh, Ukraine is showing uh, in a, in a very interesting way, Ukraine is showing the West the value of democracy. Because in, uh, in the United States, as much as in Britain, uh, criticism of contemporary democracy, which is very often justified. I mean, this system is not perfect. We all remember Churchill's famous phrase about it, right? Uh, but it's the best system which which we have and sort of dismissive criticism of democracy which is going on now in uh in the west uh ukraine demonstrates how precious democracy is how important democracy is and fighting for the cause of democracy than kind of majority of many Western intellectuals uh, and politicians become kind of disappointed and show disregard and disrespect for democratic values. So I believe uh, it's just extremely important to understand what role Ukraine plays in contemporary politics. It's not just about Ukrainian independence. It's about independence of all of us. And there are many countries in the West, um, Britain and America especially, but also uh, Spain, France, Hungary and others, and especially Serbia, that have shown, that have shown that we have, because of our internal divisions, our arguments with ourselves about our political system and our left-right point of views and that kind of uh, estrangement that we've seen over the last few years, We've shown that actually we're vulnerable to active measures. We're vulnerable to uh, Russian propaganda methodologies. And in fact, many 
I would say, sort of bad actors on the hard left and the hard right in both the US and the UK have started to adopt in some ways the technology of Russian propaganda. Um, I mean, what are your thoughts on that and how dangerous is this? I think it's extremely dangerous because it undermines the very idea of democracy, the very premises of democracy. I mean, there is sort of uh, forces both on, on, on the right and on the left call for violence in both cases. They call for uh, disrespect of individual rights and for disrespect of political opinions of their opponents which is extremely dangerous. I mean, this is not democracy. This is not the democratic system. Luckily, you know, in the US, they have the First Amendment, which is, uh, for example, was a big reason for my family and me to immigrate in, in the United States, because we felt like that democracy is best protected by constitution in this country. But so it's it's extremely dangerous and very, uh, frustrating and disappointing to see uh, to what extent this kind of uh, populist criticism of democracy, uh, this tries to sort of undermine the very foundations of this uh, political and social system. Now, it can't have come as any surprise to you, though, when Echo Muscovy and Dorscht were shut down and when the foreign agent laws drove um, the few remaining sort of journalists and commentators out of the country or, or to jail, as uh, in the case, of course, as uh, Karim Murza and um, Ilya Yashin. But what were your feelings when uh, Memorial was suppressed? And you know, to those who perhaps don't know, Memorial was the organisation that helped to keep the historical record of Stalin's terror uh, alive. Well, that was the kind of the last stroke of Putin's regime in preparation for, for the war in Ukraine. Uh, we've been watching this uh, horror uh, from here, from, from the United States, uh, their huge attack uh, on opposition that started in uh, 2020 and went on full blast in 2021. We felt that this is what's they're doing this, they're, they're kind of, you know, doing this to Navalny uh, organization, they're kind of going after memorial and closing it precisely because they need no opposition in the country in preparation for the war. Uh, but you see before, uh, what my kind of, uh, the important kind of thesis or important idea for me is that restalinization shouldn't be looked at as a sudden shift in, you know, uh, Putin's politics or is a recent phenomenon. It was a memory politics or politics of history, which he developed starting from uh, the first days of his presidencies, as we discussed, and consistently implemented throughout his entire entire past 20 years. So the brainwashing of the of the post-Soviet, of Putin's subjects, has not started, you know, like two years ago. 
It has been for 20 years a consistent campaign. They uh, tried to implant and was quite successful in, in some sense to implant in the minds of Russians the idea that because they victoriously sort of defended the world from their uh, outmost evil, evil, which is fascism, so everybody who is against Russia now, everyone who speaks against Russia interests uh, is also a Nazi. And this is how, following this logic, Ukraine, which didn't want to be part of Russia or didn't want to lose its uh, you know, economic, political independence to Russia. This is how it was pulled, uh, uh, you know, by Putin, by Putin's propaganda. This is how it became in in their kind of twisted minds uh, a Nazi regime. And as well as uh, I would say, sort of perverting or manipulating history, um, how have they institutionalized this? So what effect is this having on the education system, on culture, film, and the sort of ecosystem in which the youth are brought up? Are they also weaponizing education in order to inculcate these values? That's an uh, once again an excellent question. Uh, this uh, the Putin's regime and Putin personally uh, has started being very much interested in history education uh, back in two thousand six. Uh, then he had his first meeting with the school teachers in Nova Garyova, and like right after that, very discussing how, you know, their Soviet citizens and Soviet children need a positive view on history. Let's forget about this all kind of criminalization of our wonderful Russian past. And uh, shortly after that, uh, uh, Alexander Filipov published, well, it was not published, but the kind of preliminary version of his history textbook for the school teachers, that was a kind of an instrument to educate how teachers should teach uh, the history uh, of Russia, uh, was sort of made public. Um, at this textbook, Stalin was called at this first draft, which later was removed from their final text. Stalin was called an, an effective manager. And the whole idea was that Stalinist repressions, they were not probably laudable, but actually they were necessary because they helped modernize the country. And without them, Russia would never win the Second World War and you know, destroy this uh, fascism. So uh, this uh, textbook started a completely, that published in 2007, that started a completely new era in uh, their relationships between Russian state and education. Stalinist propaganda in film, literature, and fiction is absolutely huge and is state-supported. Uh, there, there has been so many films and uh, uh, TV series state-supported uh, in this or that shape or form, 
that promoted the image uh, of Stalin and his regime. But what I would like to emphasize is not even uh, this kind of massive visual and uh, uh, propaganda, but also to what extent the propaganda of Stalin personal, of Stalin's personality, but to what extent uh, the rehabilitation of terror, of Stalinism as a regime has been important for Putin. I mean, uh, there has been constant attempts to represent repressions as in Filipov's way. I mean, by the way, Filipov, uh, who is a historian, was completely unknown to the historical profession before he published this textbook. He was nobody from nowhere, manager of Putin's presidential campaign, uh, and had no credentials to be the historian to educate, you know, the nation. Uh, there are, I have my doubts about uh, the authorship of this textbook. I believe that uh, Alexander Dugin, who also uh, proposed the textbook, but his textbook was not accepted. Uh, maybe Filipov is just a pen name for Dugin because this textbook advocated for new Eurasian ideology and ideas in a very, very close way uh, to, to Dugin's ideology. Can we unpack that? Because this concept of Eurasianism and other phrases that uh, Lavrov and others use all the time, like multipolarity, these mm. concepts uh, really are not well known amongst the public. And, mm. and and we don't really, you know, when we hear these terms, we don't think they have any importance, but there does seem to be a far more ideologically driven um, direction, doesn't there, in, in Putin's regime. If the first half of his uh, regime was less concerned with sort of, you know, um, uh, ideologically driven concepts and it was just more pragmatic, Certainly the second half of his rule seems to be driven in, in far more ideological ways. Could you unpack those two concepts and, and, and what's their importance? Yeah, but first of all, let me uh, just say that uh, early on in his regime, uh, the ideology started to play a really, really important role. Uh, that starts from his second term, especially, and uh, because they're all kind of extreme right, kind of uh, right-wing uh, populists in um, in the Russian political spectrum, they just started jumping on Putin's administration, offering their ideas and ideology. And it happened because after the collapse of the Soviet regime, uh, there was clearly an ideological vacuum. And then Putin came to power. We shouldn't sort of demonize him. They shouldn't think of him like Napoleon, a great state leader or something. He and his crooks uh, had no ideology and no idea how to, no vision for the future. They still don't have it, but they can come back later to this issue. So at some point they felt that, oh, 
the Orthodox Church will fill this ideological vacuum for the regime. They were about stealing. They were crooks. They were not about creating. It, it was not like Adolf Hitler, uh, who kind of in his completely criminal way uh, felt about 1,000-year Reich and God knows what else. Uh, those guys, they're completely different, completely empty-minded insofar as any ideology is concerned. So uh, then there's kind of a wild Russian nationalist started to offering them easy concept, easy to grasp by their kind of criminal minds. That's uh, in this very kind of initial point of Putin's reign, this is how his ideology started to sort of form. Alexander Dugin, uh, the leader of this new Eurasian movement, was among uh, the, the first to jump on this moving wagon um, and uh, did it to a very to a big success. I mean, New Eurasianism is an ideology which claims that Russia should return to their pre-Petrine uh, times, to the times before Peter the first started westernization of Russia in uh, 17th century. So the whole idea uh, is that uh, Russia should become at get back to their traditional kind of society, monarchy and uh, uh, is ideal way for the Russians to be governed. Society of the states is the best form of social organization for Russia. Uh, democracy is evil uh, and it's a fruit of this uh, sort of Western ideology that should be completely sort of washed away. Uh, and uh, conquest of the rest of the world under their banners of the Orthodox religion, which is, according to them, the only true religion uh, and should be definitely shared with the rest of their happy humanity. Uh, that's, that's basically what this ideology is about. But Neo-Eurasianism and Dugin is... Uh, despite his huge influence uh, on on the Kremlin's ideology, he is not alone in thinking in those terms, and that's why I call I introduced uh, this concept of neo medievalism to the post Soviet studies, and I uh, believe that this neo medievalist trend has been extremely important also in Putin's uh, memory politics. Basically, restalinization needs to be understood through the lenses of neo-medievalism, because another big hero of Putin and Dugin and people around uh, the Kremlin is Ivan the Terrible. And Ivan the Terrible is such a huge hero, not only because he created what they call, started to create their uh, Russian Empire, but precisely because he introduced the first regime of the state terror in Russia called the Prechina, which is favorably compared to the Stalinism. And for those people, for the Russian right 
wing uh, ideologists, both Stalinism and their preaching are examples how the Russian society should be ruled. And uh, Dugin, for example, and his new Eurasian movement are great, uh, very fond of uh, their preaching, Ivan the Terrible, Stalin and Stalinism, and claim that this is how, this is what future beholds for Russia. And that that strikes me, it's, it's like a tyranny in search of an idea. You know, it's not a... Uh... Uh, tyranny to serve an idea it's tyranny that that has no idea except the pursuit of power and as you say sort of wealth and it's looking for some kind of uh, almost intellectual justification uh, for its existence absolutely and they find this justification in the most kind of primitive concept which is terror i mean what what is more less kind of more primitive than that the sheer cult of force, the sheer idea that you can just, uh, you know, dump the society back to the 16th century or 15th century and, you know, just control it by, by sheer, sheer uh, terror. I would like to mention something uh, in relation to Dugin uh, and neo-Eurasianism. They're, 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 has been a huge debate in the field of post-Soviet studies, whether he is influential or not, whether Dugin is marginal or not. And I think that the current events shows that uh, show very clearly that Dugin and uh, those right-wing nationalists are extremely influential in Kremlin, has always been, have always been, he has been, and people uh, other other kind of trends of uh, Russian nationalist influenced Kremlin's uh, the Kremlin's politics very considerably over over the past at least fifteen years. And of course, if they don't quote Dugin because they know that uh, that'll be controversial in the West, they quote lesser known people like Gumilyov and Ilya Ilin. Um, mm. But they come from the same toxic pool of ideas, don't they? Yes, absolutely. Although uh, it's the rumors has it that uh, the rumor the rumors have it that uh, it it's most likely that Ilyin was introduced to Putin by Dugin, but Dugin himself uh, claimed to be this kind of new Eurasianist before he read Ilyin. It looks like, uh, and also before he he acquired any any knowledge of Gumilov, of Lev Gumilov. Uh, so that's kind of uh, a sort of fabricated, uh, post hoc fabricated genealogy. Uh, but yes, you are completely right. And very recently, in one of his speeches, Putin again quoted Lenin. Ilya Ilin was a Russian uh, white uh, guard emigre who immigrated to Paris after the revolution and who created an openly fascist uh, ideology. I mean, that was an idea that Russia should kind of dominate the world and so on and so forth. But at the same time, he was great admirer of Hitler and very open admirer of Hitler 
he praised Hitler, he praised Hitlerism and Nazism and believed Nazism was a wonderful system. And it's not something that you need to go to archives to find out about. That's in his writings, which were published back in, in the time, uh, back in the, you know, 90s, 30s, 40s. Um, Putin uh, transferred his ashes, the ashes of Ilya Ilin, to, uh, to St. Petersburg. Uh, and uh, his, he recommends, Putin recommended uh, his works to their state officials. So it's not just, you know, he quoting him like uh, that's that's a Russian fascist ideology on which Putin's regime relies on. I've got two and, more questions. I know we're we're running a little bit short on time. Yeah, but if I may just yeah. add this, it's very important to understand uh, Putin's Kremlin's propaganda. It's very important to understand that the very moment they feel they are guilty of something, they immediately blame it on their opponents. This is what's going on this. They feel they know they're fascists. They admire fascism because of, you know, terror and uh, terrorist regime uh, to which they feel very close to. And of course, this is how and why Ukraine that they want to conquer became Nazi. It's a pure projection. And of course, choosing this ideology is a choice. I mean, some in the West will will not quite understand. They'll think that somehow these are a set of organic ideas that are, are, are natural to adopt, but they're a complete fabricated choice, aren't they? Because another regime in Russia has other models on which to base its ideology. It could look to the February Revolution, as you mentioned earlier. It could look to 1905. It could look to the Decemberists, or it could even look back to the Novgorodian Republic that was wiped out by Ivan the Terrible. There are other models for future Russian uh, democratic ideas and ideals. Uh, let me say something to this. I agree with you, there are other models. And uh, in the 1990s, after the collapse of uh, communism, it felt like Russia has chosen a democratic, pro-Western uh, ideology and model of development. Well, unfortunately, it didn't last. I have been writing for a long time about the causes why this pro-Western democratic ideology collapsed in Russia in, uh, in the 19, 1990s. But uh, what I wanted to mention in in reaction to to what you you've just said is that i believe what is very important uh, to understand is that of course you're right and there there has been a different there there, there is a different tra tradition to which russia can inspire uh inspire uh for democracy and uh, the collapse of the communism actually showed a different way for opened up a different way for Russia to follow the Western model, the democratic model, and it was at some point very. It was a hope that Russia will really become a democratic kind country. 
unfortunately it didn't happen and i have been sort of investigating there and writing about the uh, reasons why their best oriented democratic ideology collapsed in in the 1990s but you see i believe that your question implied that contemporary russia russia as it is now can inspire for uh the democratic future. And I really don't think so. I do believe that Russia as a state in its current borders as it exists now should not continue existing. Russia represents a colonial power at the moment. If you look at who is thrown into their, you know, this carnage of uh, the war. Those are not Russians. Majority of them are ethnic people from Tuva, Buryatia, all other kind of non-Russian nations. I believe that many of those people would like to become independent. And I think that the only way Russia can, or something, you know, some unit, some, some country, which will remain after contemporary Russia will go through the process of decolonization. This process of decolonization is the only hope for Russia to become a democratic country. Mm. And the last question really relates back to the war and to your, your concept of neo-medievalism, because I think one of the other key characteristics that has really been thrown into sharp contrast during the war is the attitude towards individual life. The value that an individual human life has. Um, we see that Ukraine is much closer to the Western concept. Um, each individual is mourned, cared for in life and death, and valued as an individual. And we see a total contempt. You know, individual people are treated as nothing more than material or cannon fodder, pushing the miasa in the in in the sort of Russian phrase there. Um, does this relate back also to this idea of neo-medievalism and, and the, the, the value placed on human life is very different from the modern world? That's absolutely true. And thank you for raising this question. Yes, indeed. Uh, the Russian neo-medievalists and uh, the Russian ideologists, they want Russia to get back to medieval times. They're kind of major goal is to dismantle this uh what they consider western concept of individualism they believe that individual life shouldn't matter that the only goal of an individual is to serve society and live or die at the order of the tsar or you know dictator who is on top of the system and uh you are absolutely right there key idea of this whole neo-medievalist movement is to dismantle democracy. Dismantle democracy as a system which protects individual rights of people, which protects human rights. They don't value, they have no, they put no sort of value in human life. And this is precisely what they observe in Russia. And you are very right pointing at that in Ukraine it's completely different also it's very different how 
Vladimir Zelensky treats his soldiers and how much he is in the front lines compared to Mr. Mm. Putin, who is never, never out of his bunker. And we've seen videos of Zelensky meeting the widows and the children of soldiers going to the front line, of course. Um, and it's it's a much more sort of popular democratic profile. Of course, there's always going to be media and spin, but there seems to be a genuine connection and trust. Yes, absolutely. And, uh, you know, Zelensky is a democratic president. Uh they, it cannot be otherwise in Ukraine at the moment, because this is Ukrainian people who are fighting for their independence, for their future, for their democracy. If you like, he just incarnates the spirit of his country, and he becomes, he behaves in the way society expects him to behave, and vice versa. In Russia, the problem this Putinism is that this undistinguished individual, Mr. Putin, who had no qualities and no character to become what he is at the moment. For many Russians, he they look at him and think, I would behave in the same way if I were in his in his shoes, so to say. That's why he is in the bunker, because many of those people who admire him would also do everything to protect his personal or her personal life uh, instead of sort of supporting his fighting fighting nation. So I, I, I really think that the way to dismantle Putinism and to dismantle this regime, it should be military defeated. Their appeasement talks, which uh, uh, President of France, the country I love, Monsieur Macron, uh, constantly offers, is the horrible strategy because you cannot negotiate this Putin. You cannot trust uh, what he tells you, and every attempt to uh, stop, uh, to prevent Ukraine from winning this war would lead only to the conservation of this regime, its kind of internal sort of restructuring. And the, the next step of this regime would be another war, but probably much better prepared. Well, Dina, I could keep talking for hours. I think there's so much more to explore. Um, unfortunately, we've run out of time, but it's been a huge pleasure speaking to you. It's been incredibly insightful. And um, hopefully we'll get the chance to talk again, because I know I still have a million questions to ask. But I'm very grateful to you for spending time today. Jonathan, thank you very much for having me. It was a pleasure and very insightful for me too.